Hi, this is Peter Case. You're listening to the Your Morning Coffee podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Billboard, are major labels cooling on viral artists? From the Wall Street Journal, the $1.2 billion vinyl industry's rise, fall, and rebirth explained. And from single, tunes and tactics, the strategies behind May's music releases. Well, we've got a lot of stuff today. Glad you're here. Jay and I are both here, and we are ready to start the show right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Well, good day to you, Jay. It is good to see you, my friend. Good to see you. Great to see you. What an incredible morning. Um... How about that uh, Peter Case intro? Let me tell you. I mean, we, you know, we we briefly talked about this before. We were we were and are giant Plimsolls fans, giant Peter Case yeah. fans, and uh, to a to have a documentary coming out about him. Oh, it's out. B, it just came have, out. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, it just came out. Exactly right. I'm sorry, it's out. Uh, and then B to uh, to have him do an intro for us. Yeah. And oh my goodness, I couldn't be more excited to you know it, it's a great documentary. It too. really oh, is. Good. Let's listen in on the trailer. And hi, I'm Peter Case. Peter Case. <laughs> I'd heard a story that David Geffen had seen him in a club and was convinced he saw the next John Lennon. The next time I see him, he's like, Peter, what happened? I go, you're David Geffen. You tell me what happened. There's always a reason why some kid ends up 3,000 miles away from home or why he's always traveling around. I clung to my guitar like a burning piece of wreckage in a sinking ship. What I wanted was a band that could like really blow the roof off the place. Living here in LA, I thought they were huge. I thought they were big everywhere. How can you keep something like that lit? It burns too bright. He decided to quit the Plimsolls and go solo. 
but I'm going out in front of a sold out house. I'm out there naked. He went from rock guy to singer songwriter guy, but it was very clear that he's a serious songwriter. The New York Times gave Peter Kay's solo album, Album of the Year 1986. They were just waiting for the next one. If he delivers a folk record, they're like, why? He goes, I don't know if I'm going to be on Geffen anymore. I call them up, but they don't seem to know who I am. It's like everybody's trying to get in there, and I'm trying to get out, man. And like, I finally got out. I was like, yes. He's really no different from any of the old greats. All those guys paid the bills by getting in the station wagon and going. There's a certain beauty to that. I really don't know what I think about things without writing a song about it. That's the mystery of it. The world's in a really dark place, so I know songs don't save it. It's a war going on for the soul of the world right now. Not to get too heavy about it. Set up to the shoe at Pelican Bay in a solitary cell. Saving the people, saving our common heritage, our common cultural heritage. It's missionary work. I'm a million miles away. He goes, Peter, for once in your life, take yes for an answer. I learned so much. Um, about his career that I didn't know. And, you know, I, I worked at first uh, Peter Kay's solo uh, record. And, of course, that Plimsoll's record was in heavy rotation uh, on my uh, turntable for a long time. Um, so for those that don't know, the documentary is called Peter Case A Million Miles Away. It's available on Amazon, Apple, Google Play, YouTube. Um, it's it's available everywhere. Uh, it is you, you and I love documentaries, and I've I've... I've been turned on to so many great documentaries from you, and it's very rare that I actually turn you on to a documentary, but uh, it was incredible. It's a good one. And there's a lot of inside baseball stuff, too, about his relationship with Geffen Records. And, and uh, oh, it's really, really good. And, you know, we, we were talking, and it's interesting to, to, to see that documentary and kind of go back in time, because we were both obviously or starting out in the business or in the business at the time. And, you know, you recognize, now we talk about Americana as a category and how, how successful and popular it is and so many artists that we love mm-hmm. and, and go to see live and shows like that. But he was really on that way, like way, pioneer. way early. You know, that was a pioneer, exactly. And, um, you know, and you it really sort of uh, uh, documents how, you know, the challenge of artists that that want to shift gears and, you know, and, and, and moved stylistically to something different and, and how hard that is yeah. and how hard it can be. And his path, which was just remarkable and really interesting. And, oh, it's a great documentary. Yeah. Really excited highly, to see it. Highly to see it recommend again, it. Actually. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So good stuff. We were talking before we hit record about an announcement um, that we saw this last week um, from Undercover and it's U-N-D-R-C-V-R. Um, why waste a, mm-hmm. a bunch of uh, vowels when you don't need to? Vowels. And, yeah. And it's, uh, it's a great company um, we've worked with. But they've, they've launched a new thing called Undercover Ads um, that we've been talking about. And, you know, that's one of those things in music marketing. There's a lot of tools that we've used, you know, Tone Den, Foundy, Show.co, Boost. There's, there's a bunch of them. But I'm really excited to try out um, this undercover ads. Uh, their founder is a friend of mine, um, John Frank. And, you know, I worked with him, at, you know, in the WIA ADA days. And he used to be the head of marketing at uh, 300 Entertainment. Um, and he and his partner, Eddie uh, Levy, 
um, they've launched this undercover ads and they use AI and algorithms and things that I don't really understand to really highly target ads. So I'm going to set up a couple of campaigns here, but I'm, I'm super excited that, you know, we've talked a lot about AI and algorithms. Um, they're not always used for nefarious uh, purposes. It's, it's pretty cool that they're um, being launched in, in this platform and in others. It's super cool. Well, and, you know, we both work with developing artists and sometimes folks that don't have a, a big budget for advertising. And it's super important. If you The more targeted and the more, um, the more impactful your ad buy and ad spend is, uh, the better. And it's, you know, it's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Sometimes it's throwing a dart against the wall with your eyes yeah. closed. But, man, this sure seems like it's it's got some epic potential. Yeah. I'll let you know how the campaigns go, but I always yeah. uh, pull out the old joke, you know, half of my advertising doesn't work. I just don't know which half. And, uh, the great thing about, you know, <laughs> so stuff like this is that you can actually see what uh, works. So we'll be, uh, we'll be reporting back on undercover ads. The other thing that you and I were talking about, which is just mind blowing this week is, um, CNN reported, um, that Queens, a music catalog, um, could be selling, for a billion dollars. Yikes. And that's a big number, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? what but I, as I was reading that article, I'm like, wait a minute. So, so you know, going back in time for a bit, you'll, you'll recall that if you were a Queen uh, fan in, in when they came out in the late 70s and into the 80s, and we were. you would buy the records here in North America. Yeah. That, was, that was on Elektra Records. They were on EMI for the rest of the world. And then they were on Electra here, and I'm not sure how that happened, but that's that was not uncommon with EMI artists. They they had a separate deal for, for the U.S. sometimes. So, uh, but I think like back in 2011, I thought Universal acquired from EMI their ex-U.S. catalog. I believe it's um, Disney um, Company, which is distributed Disney, by Universal, well, no, the right? No, I thought Universal had it for outside the U.S. and then and then did well. Originally, Hollywood Records got the took over the North American rights from uh, from Elektra. So I don't. I'm very confused. I'm not confused on the value of the catalog at all, though. It's you know that is a boy that is a, a crown jewel amongst crown jewels. Right, and we were just talking and about Springsteen recently at five hundred million. Yeah. You know, and some of these other mm -hmm. ones like Bob Dylan, you know, Queen's discography has 15 studio albums, 10 live albums, two soundtracks. They've sold 300 million records worldwide, had nine top 20 hits, you know, I mean, and two number ones, another one bites the dust and crazy little thing called love uh, by all measures, you know, just this massive success. And we'll have to ask our, our friends who know this stuff, like where the rights are and where, you know, the catalog landed yeah, and, and all of that. I do know a couple of people um, that would know that and we'll we'll look into that. But I thought that that was uh, amazing oh. because we had reported on some of these large kind of acquisitions had been cooling off. And people had talked about, you mm -hmm. know, these acquisitions from hypnosis, KKR, BMG, primary wave, that there was kind of a gold rush for a while. And then it seemed like they were kind of slowing down, but, uh, this is a big one. This is a big one. And you'd be hard pressed to find a bigger one, you know, short of an Eagles or Billy Joel or Michael Jackson catalog, Elton John. but none of those really, 
Yeah, yeah, something Beatles. like that. But boy, that's a, a billion dollars, and I wonder if that's including public. You know, who, there's a bunch of variables yeah, we, don't, we know. don't know. But boy, that's when the deal a big that's a big yeah. Number. When the deal goes through, if the deal goes through, um, we'll we'll definitely report back on the details so we can wrap our heads around it a little yeah. bit more. And before we yeah. jump into our um, our stories, there was another one that we were talking about from Ted Joya, um, and we cover his stuff uh, quite a bit. Um, he, he had this piece out and it was an analysis of 47 million transaction tells an amazing story about the music business. And it's about some new research, mm-hmm. this report from Andrew Thompson at, uh, components. It analyzed nearly 48 million Bandcamp sales involving almost 5 million items. And it talks about what they learned. Well, and, you know, we talk about this a lot and they, they come to the conclusion that success in the music business is all about selling physical objects. And, you know, the Internet supposedly killed physical music media more than two decades ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, iTunes launched back in 2001. Uh, no looking back. At first, the music industry pro- pivoted to dig- digital downloads. And, of course, then we jumped into streaming bandwagon. But in 2023... Uh, streaming platforms still aren't profitable. However, Bandcamp is, and now we know why. It's about the tangible items, yeah. Jay, the tangible items. Yeah. yeah. We talked about Taylor Swift, you know, selling a couple hundred thousand cassettes. Um, we talk about half the vinyl uh, being purchased by people who don't own a turntable. Um, and we're going to jump into these stories after we thank our sponsors. But, you know, one of our stories we're covering today really digs into that. And that's from the wall street journal, um, about, uh, the vinyl industry and why yeah. fans want something tangible, um, physical to show their fandom. But we'll, we'll jump into that in a second. Yeah. So let's thank our, our sponsors, Jay, cause man, we, uh, we really appreciate what they bring to the table every week and we could not do it without them. Yeah, let's do that. So first, We'd like to thank HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. Edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla, HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. You betcha. Bands in Town. Over 74 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Big thanks to HypeBot and Bands in Town. Thank you very much. Every week, every week I get to hang out with this chap, Jay Gilbert. He is a music business consultant. He's the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal, Sony, and Warner Music Groups and a renaissance man through and through. (laughs) And this guy sitting across from me who turns me on to so many cool songs and documentaries is Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups. Yippee and Yahoo. And let's jump into the stories then, Jay. The first one is from Billboard. Are major labels cooling? Yes, cooling on viral artists. I've been hearing a lot about this lately. Um, that yeah. Because, again, there was sort of a gold rush for these, quote-unquote, viral 
hits or viral artists. But the problem with some of that is some of them have never played a live show. Some of them, honestly, we saw a few that hadn't even finished a complete song. They had a part of a song that they were working with. And uh, some labels, I, I moderated a panel at Music Tectonics on A&R and data. And we were talking about this subject. Some of these A&R people just totally ignored what was going on at TikTok and YouTube and some of these things. They really wanted to have an artist that had already established a base and had engagement from that base. And then there were others that were just going after these viral mm -hmm. uh, artists. And I think that's really what this uh, article by Elias Light from Billboard is touching on. Well, and it's really sort of the 21st century version of the 20th century issue that you, you might have dealt with, you know, when you're working with artists, which is, you know, having a hit out of the box. And so people fall in love with that hit, not necessarily with that artist. And that is the worst thing that can happen in artist development. And so this is, I, as I'm reading this article, I'm thinking back to that situation, which is, Congratulations, you've got a hit, but now what do you do with it? And people didn't fall in love necessarily. In this case, sometimes they fell in love with videos yeah. or songs and videos. And yeah, yeah then, they, then they move on and it, it's, it can be really, really hard. It, so, absolutely. I don't know. Um, I, I would just like to add a, a quick quote um, from Keith Urban, which I, I use in material sometimes because it's so good. He said, you write a hit song and you'll have a moment build an audience and you'll have a career. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the article in Billboard uh, starts talking about a song called Painting Pictures uh, with uh, rapper Superstar Pride. <clears throat> Basically unknown with less than a thousand on-demand streams in the U.S. in January, according to Illuminate. But as you know, TikTok is famous for its ability to help newcomers attract eyeballs. Mm -hmm. This clip, just a rapper and a microphone marooned on a tennis court, quickly passed 1 million views on the app. And the week ending February 9th uh, on on-demand streams of painting pictures uh, leapt from a negligible to over 130,000. Wow. Uh, and so we're talking about eight days later, following week, on-demand streams ballooned to more than 4 million. So this is a kid who had a very rapid rise. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it's we we've seen this so many times. Yeah, you know there was this crazy conversion to streaming. You know, one senior label e executive said, "Pride made the rounds. Every label was talking to him, but in the end, the rapper announced he was staying with United Masters, which initially distributed the single. You know, some artists prefer the independent route. Um, Pride's success is just another example of an independent artist finding tremendous success." Without the need to give up his rights to, you know, a record company, United Masters Steve Stout um, told Billboard uh, last month that his path, the rapper's path, was also complicated by the fact that the Faith Evans sample underpinning uh, the song "Painting Pictures" wasn't cleared initially. Still, some in the music industry saw this episode as a demonstration of the major labels' more cautious approach to this sort of viral phenomenon. Right. So uh, one senior executive says three or four years ago, if that bidding war had happened, it undoubtedly would have come to fruition. Um, 
Yeah. Somebody would have made the rapper an offer that was just too big to turn down. In 2023, however, some labels are disillusioned with their viral pickups, according to one music attorney who spoke on the condition of anonymity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been a lot of losses. Buyers are going to be a little bit more deliberate. Yeah. Buyers meaning, of course, labels yeah. in this case. And we've been, we've been hearing a lot about this lately. You know, for several years, the mainstream music industry appeared fixated on signing acts with viral momentum. Right. So during interviews, executives described the process of combing through heaps of song artist data, you know, from streaming social media platforms, especially TikTok, identifying tracks, you know, uh, with a hockey stick graph, you know, and, and numbers racing up to mm-hmm. the right. So and they would scurry to lock in a deal before the competitors. Privately, though, some express surprise that the job seems similar to stock trading, while others criticize the signing strategy as basically buying up the market share, but foregoing the tough work of artist development. There it is. Mm, there it is right there. Absolutely. But you can understand, you know, the, the urge to do right. that. His labels have been aware of social media's powers to drive wild surges of interest in songs for more than a decade, mm-hmm. at least since a Gangnam Style back in 2012 and Harlem Shake in 2013, if not before. In the years since, social media and streaming platforms have become far more potent and labels invested heavily in honing their research, hiring data whizzes to develop tools that scrape these platforms. Yeah top to bottom yeah they hire these you know i know some of them where their job is basically to look Mm -hmm. at the data from all of these different platforms excuse me and and try to identify early on these sort of quote-unquote viral hits i mean every big label has access to the same pool of information from social media partners more or less so you know a speedy outreach to artists is essential but even so, there were a lot of bidding wars that were going on, especially, you know, 2019 to 2021. Um it felt like every single day artists signed a deal that was a gazillion dollars, says another music industry lawyer who requested anonymity, uh, to speak candidly. And in the mad rush to beat out the next label, the song and artist being signed sometimes seemed secondary to the data. People are spending huge um, on sound effect rec- uh, records. One executive grumbled in 2020. Yeah, we've been we saw some of that, and we also saw some of these artists because of the fact that they hadn't developed a larger audience. And to your point earlier, it was really based on the song or the clip of the song. It's not like they could go tour or they were selling a lot of merch or landing a lot of uh, sinks. Right. It says this. Go, the, the article goes on. Despite artists and labels' best efforts, it's now standard to hear that engineering a trend on TikTok is about as likely as buying the winning lottery ticket from the local <laughs> corner store. And it's a lottery that appears to have diminishing returns. Uh, viral trends in 2020 uh, did not translate to streaming platforms as effectively as they did in 2020. Mm. Uh, I'm sorry. Viral trends in 2022 did not uh, translate as as they did in 2020. All you can do is drop music consistently and pray, <laughs> says another senior executive you know at a major. I hear that, that every never week. Looks, that never looks good. No. Yeah, yeah. I the hear marketing a, plan which yeah, says pray. Yeah, all you can do is drop music consistently and pray. Well, they say that consistency is kind of that new currency, that if you're doing it, whether it's releasing music, a nice video uh, strategy where you're releasing different types of videos and you're using all these platforms and tools and you're consistently, consistently, that's easy for you to say, um, playing live, releasing great music, that good things happen. But 
Um, Helen Vu, uh, or you, I'm sorry, Helen Yu, a founder of a music law firm, Yu uh, uh, Leesburg, um, she said that the market has been correcting. Labels are backing off in terms of just chasing a number. At some point, it comes back to the recognition of talent. And I think that pendulum's swung, Mike. I, I think that at one point, people saw success. And everybody jumped in there and grabbed all these, you know, influencers and, and all these viral hits. And now it's kind of swinging back the other way where they're looking more at a deeper artist development. Yeah. Well, and it's, again, this is <clears throat> what's old is new and what's new is old. You know, this has always been the challenge in the business is, is developing those artists and nobody wants one hit wonders. And no, um, but you know, but we, but it's like it's like high school, <laughs> you know, it's the trends and things. You know, when when people are chasing these viral artists, then other labels start chasing these viral artists, and it just creates this momentum of of crazy money being put out for, like you said, artists that maybe barely had a full song yeah. composed. And yeah. well, it, it's uh, the only it, it, it's not going to work in the long run. Yeah, time. the only thing I would add to this is there's one other ingredient. Um, in this recipe. And that is that because of the way that streaming pays the pro rata model that we talk about all the time versus market centric, mm -hmm. user centric, you know, because of that, um, labels now are rewarded on market share and that, yeah. that makes them some go after some of these one hit wonders or potential one hit wonders because they need that market share bump because of the revenue that it creates for them. So I think, you know, we talked about SoundCloud testing out this platform fans and uh, a user-centric model, um, you know, with Warner Music. And, you know, there are other, other platforms that are trying this out, testing this. Um, there are those in the industry that believe that if we can switch from pro rata to user-centric, that it, it will alleviate some of these issues of people just trying to jack up uh, market share. Yeah. Yeah. Well, things to, con to consider as we move forward throughout this year. Very, very interesting. Um, let's jump into the next story, Jay. Number two for us from the Wall Street Journal, the, the $1.2 billion vinyl industries rise, fall, and rebirth explained. And this was really a great piece. This was a, a, a video piece. Actually. Yeah. It's a seven minute video. Uh, from Wall Street Journal is part of a series called Explained, Wall Street Journal Explained. And we've covered a couple of others of these in the past. They're just really well done. Um, it was by Alexandra Larkin and Justin Belts from the Wall Street Journal. And it kicks off with uh, Mike Shinoda from Lincoln Park in a record store shopping, which is really cool. And uh, he starts, um, you know, just going through the bins and, you know, he said that all of his first beats were off sampled records. And, uh, you know, lately, uh, Lincoln Park sold a lot of vinyl. Um, and Mike Shinoda loves, loves to buy vinyl. He's not alone. Vinyl albums outsold CDs last year for the first time since 1987, uh, you know, to the tune of like $1.2 billion, you know, and that's in today's quote unquote digital era. People can hear hundreds of millions of songs anywhere, and yet vinyl, it's expensive, immobile, you know, it was left for dead. It's now booming. Well, and he talked about kind of saying, you know, he didn't see this coming. He thought it was never, vinyl was never coming back. 
And I mean, we've talked about this too. I would have said the same thing. Me too. Like, there is just no vinyl coming back, and and we were there for the for the send off of vinyl when CDs were coming in. Right, we saw that happen because you were at Tower and I was at an independent mm-hmm. label and and th- things like that. We we couldn't make CDs fast enough and say bye bye to vinyl fast right. enough. And and you know and in here we are and uh, and then in, and our friend Larry Miller, who's the director of NYU's music business program, you know, came on. He said no physical formats ever came back ever <laughs> until this one did. So, you know, you you would be hard pressed if you were voting or, or putting money down, saying that yeah, we're we're we're, we're vinyl's going away, but it's going to come back. It's going to come back. You would have been laughed out of the room. Yeah, I I didn't know anybody who could foresee it. You know. But this is an antique format that's coming back, both in spite of and because of the digital music revolution. And Larry Miller says in the beginning of the beginning, around the very early part of the 20th century, there were wax cylinders that carried a sound recording. You know, Thomas Edison's phonograph introduced recorded music to the masses. You know, eventually it was, you know, it used discs. Um, but they they talked to this guy, um, Mark Michaels, who's the CEO and owner of yeah. the largest pressing plant in the United States. It's called United Record Pressing in Nashville. And I thought he had some interesting things to say. Yeah, you know, he's, he was saying back in the 60s and 70s when vinyl was really the only format that was still relevant as the core of the existence in the U.S., it was a, that place, United, was a very, very busy place. And it showed a graph in this video of when vinyl like just was at its lowest point, which I think was in 2006. Yeah. yeah. And Mark Michaels bought United in 2007. I was thinking as I was watching that, I'm like, man, that was a gutsy move that I'm sure everybody tried to talk him out of. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) And, and now he's investing another like $11 million into all of these new state of the art, um, pressing machines, um, because most of the uh, machines that they're using are 50, 60 years old. You know, it, it's crazy. Yes. You know, he, he said that um, when he bought the company in 2007, it was a much smaller business. He said he had 38 employees at the time. Um, vinyl seemed dead. You know, um, nobody thought vinyl was going to come back except for those uh, hardcore fans. But in the early 2010s, it did. Yeah, hard to believe. And then, you know, Larry Miller comes on. He says, we could ask the question, why did that happen? All of the music that has ever been recorded is available to almost all of us on our phones. And Mark Mark Michaels at United, he, he is of the opinion that there was something missing in that experience. And then they... Then, you know, Larry says the answer lies in the way we express fandom. And I think this is kind of this is what key. we've been talking about yeah. earlier, which is, it's key, you know, which is people want to hang on to stuff. I think that's just sort of a, a natural human condition is you want it, you want stuff. And yeah. um, uh, as Mike Shinoda says, I think a lot of fancy buying things from their favorite artists as keeping those artists going. And yeah, you know, you want to do right by your artists. And that is the definition of fandom. I do. I, I believe that, you know, Larry, yes. Larry said it costs about the same as a black T-shirt at a concert and less than a hoodie. Um, it contains the actual music, beautiful graphics, photography, lyrics, other stuff. And so for many fans, especially young ones, they consider that to be a pretty cool trade. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Mark Michaels talks about, you know, as, as he started watching the demand go up and up and up, and he eventually grew to, uh, grew to 90 to 100 people, went from running one and a half shifts to three shifts, and they did everything they could do to accommodate growth. But as you mentioned, you know, one of the great things about the, this, this video is it shows some of those old machines and mm-hmm. the process. If you haven't been to a pressing plant, I mean, it is, <clears throat> it's like steampunk, yeah, you know, it's it these really gigantic is. machines yeah. with hoses and, and grease hanging off of it. And, and it's, it's a dirty, brutal, loud place to be, but it's so cool. I, I mean, think it's steampunk is a really good way sexy. to describe it, Mike, because it, it really is like this ancient thing that almost looks futuristic, you know, and Larry points out that on demand streaming services like Spotify, Apple music, Amazon, and so on, you know, they're paying out well under, you know, a penny a stream. So artists are making significantly more money on a per unit basis from vinyl sales. It stands to reason, right? I mean, today a vinyl record is going to cost somewhere between 25 and $30 per disc. And Mm -hmm. Frankly, a lot of fans say they prefer the sound of vinyl to digital. Right. And Mark Michaels at United says, you know, there's more life to it. It draws me in. I don't get tired of it. I want to listen to it more. And, you know, you hear that from a lot of people. Again, we've talked about this a lot. It's an active listening experience as opposed to a passive listening experience. Yeah. And uh, they, and, and as the Wall Street Journal goes on, it says, while vinyl is rebounding, revenue from physical formats made up just 11% of recorded music revenue in 2022. Vinyl's continued growth isn't guaranteed because records are really hard to manufacture and most machines are basically antiques going on is what we said. And it also shows in the video, uh, Mark Michael's investment at United in new machines. Right. And that is a chunk of change. Boy, let me tell you, that is a, that is a pricey investment, yeah. but they're beautiful machines. Oh, they are. They show them in the video. Yeah. As well. And it also shows that he's placing a bet that vinyl is not going to go away anytime soon. And I I think he's, he's right. You know, there are some issues, you know, Larry points out that it's, uh, it's still difficult for an independent artist or for an independent label to schedule the manufacturing and release of relatively small runs of vinyl with any great precision. But, you know, the industry's catching up. Um, As you mentioned, new equipment is finally being produced you know, Mark, you know, they showed those presses that you saw. And I think he got like 26 of them for that uh, $11 million. But now United presses 60,000 records a day and has instead of 38 employees, they have 234. So despite those challenges, some industry professionals think that the format is here to stay. I think they're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't see it going away at this point, but I was wrong the first time. So hard to say, but boy, it's a worth worthwhile. Go to the newsletter and find that link and uh, and check it out. It, good job from the Wall Street Journal, by the way, to uh, to uh, cover this topic, and uh, they did a great job. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, they sure did. Uh, on. Th- on to number three, Jay, from Single, Tunes and Tactics, the strategies behind May's music releases. May's being the month of May, not Brian May, right? Right, indeed. Um, yeah, this is from Single. We've covered a, a Single Music. We've covered some of their things uh, in the past. Um, and it's it's really about how some of these newer artists you know, have been marketing, um, their music. And they, they started off by saying that dropping new music isn't just about the songs. It's also about the strategy behind the release. This past month, we've seen 
top artists like Beyonce, Kendrick Lamar, uh, Kodak Black, Kesha, and Lainey Wilson mix things up with their latest releases. So it goes on. Music lovers got a surprise treat on Friday, May 19th, when Beyonce unveiled a remix of America Has a Problem, featuring a verse from Kendrick Lamar. This came smack in the middle of Beyonce's world tour, following her Renaissance album from last year. These two hadn't teamed up for seven years, so the reunion sent fans into a frenzy. The remix release was nicely timed. The track was already getting a lot of love on TikTok, and this fresh remix added to the buzz. It was a surprise that fans didn't see coming, making it even more thrilling. Yeah, and the next um, example they point out is consistent beats keep Kodak Black in the spotlight. So unlike Beyonce and Kendrick, Kodak Black opts for a regular release on May 26th, 2023. He unveiled his fifth studio album, Pistols and Pearls, with a whopping 21 tracks. We've been seeing a lot of this lately. His steady output keeps him from relevant, or keeps him relevant, I'm sorry, in the music scene. His previous album, Cutthroat Bill Volume 1, was released in 2022. Yeah, his new album is a blend of his signature style and collaborations with ESTG, Psycho Bob, and others. There's also a video for Gunsmoke Town, a standout track from the album, reinforcing Kodak's stories about post-fame life and street realities. And, you know, I'm sure you were thinking the same thing as I'm reading this article. You know, it just, it, it's, it, it really comes to, to the forefront of how important it is to just be creative with 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 the stuff you do right. and you know it's we've talked a lot about the templatization back in our early days of the music mm-hmm. business how you just really had you know it wasn't templatized but the, your, your choices your kind of verticals were limited they were st- they were standard yeah yeah they were limited that's right and and things are i've just changed so dramatically and it all but also you know shows the the complexity and the challenge for an artist to be good at writing music be good at performing and then be good at marketing and then be good at creatively releasing these different things yeah. and it's it's really it's hard yeah you know be- it's a lot to think and as you said you know you got to get a team but together to to kind of really effectively get all this as, as these artists had clearly yeah um, a, a team and <clears throat> excuse me a plan and I love that they're mixing things up. And I love that it's not limited anymore. You can drop music as early and often as you want and videos and other creative. And you can do an album with, you know, dozens of tracks or you can do, you know, singles, EPs. There's, you just need to have mm-hmm. that plan. And I think it comes back to that consistency again. You know, as you're growing your audience, as you're engaging your audience is having a level of consistency. Um, But I like kind of seeing how um, some of these tactics, like they talk about Kesha and uh, Lainey Wilson having what they call extras that shine. So there's Kesha and Lainey Wilson who know how to make their releases extra special. Kesha's new digital album, Gag Order, takes a different route from her usual party pop tunes, embracing a more serious tone. The signed digital album outsold the regular version, indicating that fans appreciate a more personal touch. Yeah, Lainey Wilson followed suit with her recent Bell Bottom Country album release. The added bonus, a signed vinyl version. Yeah. Amid the digital music era, this old school touch offered a unique appeal 
that her fans loved. Yeah. And, you know, as, as, the, as the article kind of concludes, when it comes to music releases, today's artists are thinking creatively. It might be an unexpected remix, a steady stream of new songs, or a personalized, personalized touch to an album. They're finding ways to connect with fans and keep them engaged. The takeaway here, there's no one-size-fits-all approach to music releases. Artists have to find what resonates best with their artists. Yeah, but, uh, I agree. You know, I mean, and you, you, I know you deal with it, with this with artists all the time. You know, you you don't want to have a you want to have a steady stream of stuff, whatever that stuff is, right? Yeah, that consistency. <clears throat> excuse me, you're rewarded with that consistency on social media, on DSPs, on YouTube. We've seen that in the data. Um, but I, I had a conversation yesterday with a music manager and we were talking about, you know, some of these things. Um, and she asked me about um, a release cadence. And I told her one that was a little bit different that we had tried that worked pretty well was with the band Vintage Trouble. And instead of dropping the album, we did this. So there's 10 songs. So we broke it up into two five song EPs. But we didn't just release a five song EP. We did, you know, focus tracks leading up to that five song EP. But then we took those exact same five songs from that first EP and created an EP that was reimagined, not just stripped down, but like a reggae version or a bluesy version or whatever. So same songs. And then we did focus tracks leading up to that. And then there's EP number two, which is a counterpart to EP number one. Then we took those 10 songs, put them together for vinyl and CD. Then we re, we replicated this process with EP number two, which was the second set of five songs from the album. But instead of doing five reimagined songs, we did five live versions of those exact songs. And again, focus tracks leading up to each EP over time. And then we put the five live songs with the five studio songs. That was album vinyl CD number two. So instead of just dropping an album with a few um, focus tracks that might get us through a few months, we had almost two years of consistent releases and things to talk yeah. about and publicity and touring. And it really helped. Uh, and the numbers bear that, you know, we had really good success on the streaming side with physical, with just publicity. It, and, and I'm not saying that that's the right release cadence for everyone. It just illustrates that the days of just releasing a full album every 18 months for most artists, that's not viable anymore. No, no, no. And that's, I mean, that's a super creative. And I was, as you were saying that, I was wondering how long that, that, uh, that time frame was two years. That is fantastic. Yeah. And that's really what it takes. And that's super creative, a lot of work, yeah. but man, that's, that is a very clever approach. And that's, and that's the reality of what you have to do today to keep keep it relevant because it's so it's so easy to get lost in the shuffle yeah. and for people to forget you and move on and you kept giving them reasons to to stay engaged with their fans yeah. which is awesome. So, and there I mean there's it's limitless. Good work my friend Thank Jay. you. It's it's limitless as to what you can do. Um I like to watch um what other people do with their marketing. Music Ally has some really good resources that <clears throat> Every year they show some of the top campaigns uh, that uh, record companies are using. But on the indie side, we're working with uh, an artist uh, as the fan base is being developed. Yeah, we have the album, but then we're releasing 
um, really nice, nicely recorded videos of the artist doing some of the songs acoustically because um, it's so beautiful. And we're releasing an audio counterpart at the same time we release the video. And then it gives us something to talk about. And sometimes people miss all of the great tools that you can use on YouTube, you know? Um, and one of them is that description. You control that description and you can put sidemen lyrics. Um, you can put your landing page or smart URL in there. There's so much that you can do with that and to tell that story. So, as we're releasing these acoustic versions and, uh, you know, with video and with audio, it just gives us something else to talk about. And they're so different than the studio recordings. Um, and it just gives you a little bit better uh, communication, collaboration, you know, that dialogue. It's again, it all comes back to that consistency. Well, and and we love that stuff as fans. Yeah, you know? damn I mean, right. That's, that's the beauty of it. You know, it's we and and the the stuff that the the bar the bands that we were fans of, we would go searching for things like that. You know, what's out there? What's out? And it was you know pre internet. It was always often hard to find. But that's the reality of of marketing music right now. Is make the fans happy. Give them keep reasons to come. I back. think you just nailed it. It's like that fan mentality. And those people like us that work for record labels had that and have that fan mentality. And I'll just, before we go, I want to share one other example of record companies that understand the fan mentality. And this is back um, in the CD era, really before downloads took off. I'm a huge Neil Finn crowded house fan, split ends, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And what was genius about uh, their marketing, and I think this came out of the UK, is they would release CD singles, okay? But it, yes. would, it wouldn't just be one of the new songs. It'd be one of the new songs with a couple of live tracks, right? And as a fan, yes. you can't wait yeah. to get that stuff, right? But they would release it in a dual digipack, meaning that there's space for two CDs. But they would only have one CD in that dual digipack because a month later they'd release this, the second CD for that set with one single and two live tracks. And you'd pay 10 bucks for each one of those cheerfully. So by the time you got the second one, you just paid $20 for two new songs, but you got four live tracks and you've got this collectible that's sort of limited. I cherish those things and I wish I could, I could buy more of them. And I think today it's like vinyl is like that a little bit. Like I buy vinyl you know, um, I told you last week, you know, I was at Grimey's in Nashville and bought a bunch of vinyl. I have those things available to me via streaming, but not with that booklet, you know, not with that nope. experience nope. of yep. sitting and leaning forward. And also it's my way of showing those artists. I support you. You know, I, I want you to make more revenue again, cheerfully. Yes, cheerfully. Well, and and, and you you uh, you took me back to when I would go into Tower. I would often try to find those import bins that had, it, and we were both fans of the band Jellyfish. And when Jellyfish out, uh, came out, a lot the UK label did a lot of clever things like that. And yeah, I would go looking for that stuff. And like you said, money wasn't really something I considered. It's like I just wanted that stuff, and <laughs> right. I would buy everything yeah. that was available, everything. Yeah, and uh, yeah, me too. That's the beauty of fandom. On, and on that note, Jay, let's wrap up episode 147. I know Jay and I would like to thank everyone that listens and say 
thanks. <laughs> we appreciate it. We uh, couldn't do it without you. Yeah. We also couldn't do it without our sponsors. want to thank our good friends over at HypeBot and Bands in Town. Thanks so much for helping us every week. We could not do it without you. And on behalf of Jay Gilbert, I say thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.